Hello everyone, welcome to episode 47 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today's episode is another listener suggestion. This suggestion has come from our listener Bree. And today we are heading to a country I don't think we visited before on this podcast. Uh, today we will be talking about a murder that occurred in Italy. Ooh! <laughs> uh, so before we begin, I just want to say that there's a really in-depth article on this case written by Tobias Jones for The Guardian. And a lot of the background information for this case has come from this article, uh, which I have, of course, linked in the description box along with the other articles that I read for this case. The girl at the centre of our case is Yara Gambarasio. Yara was born to her parents, Mora and Folvio, on the 21st of May 1997. Her mother, Mora, was a teacher, and her father, Folvio, was an architect. The couple had four children in total, a daughter just two years older than Yara, and two sons who were born after Yara. The Gambarasio family lived in a town called Brambate de Sopra, a small town about an hour north of Milan. Yara was a keen rhythmic gymnast and spent all of her free time outside of school training or going to competitions. What's a rhythmic gymnast? <laughs> like, uh, just like the kind of gymnastics that I used to do. <laughs> so it's mainly like floor work and that kind of thing. So like, you know, like the proper performances that you see. I didn't know you were a gymnast. <laughs> Before your time, Sally. <laughs> when I was like seven. <laughs> oh, everyone was a gymnast when they were seven. Were you? <laughs> Were you? No, but I did four different mediums of dance, so I didn't have time to be a gymnast. <laughs> nice to see that none of those made it to your adult life. <laughs> mm, fair point. <laughs> um, so yeah, Yara was a keen rhythmic gymnast, um, and unlike everyone else, it seems, according to Sally, Yara had carried this on past her childhood, um, and she was 13 years old when this case was set in 2010. On Friday the 26th of November 2010, at 5.15 in the afternoon, Yara left home to quickly drop something off at the gym that was just a short walk away from where she lived. By 7 o'clock, Yara had still not returned home to her family. Despite the fact that Brambate de Sopra was a quiet, uneventful, safe town, her parents were, of course, understandably worried. At 11 minutes past 7, Yara's mother called her phone, but it went straight to voicemail. 20 minutes later, at 7.30pm, Yara's father called the police. The call was picked up by Letizia Ruggeri, a formidable woman who had spent 15 years as a magistrate. This experience meant that Ruggeri knew exactly how serious this matter was, and she quickly dispatched both the state police and the carabinieri to Brembate de Sopra. So the carabinieri is quite similar to military police, but they have the same duties among the civilian population as like local law enforcement. So basically, um, yeah, they dis dispatched essentially two police forces. The police spoke to Yara's gym instructor and she confirmed that she had seen Yara earlier that day. She said that Yara had done a little bit of light training before she'd left. She wasn't sure what time that was, but it was definitely before 7pm, she said. Friends and family who had spoken to Yara came forward and the police were able to establish that the last known contact with Yara had been a text message that she had sent to her friend Martina at 6.44pm. The text from Yara to Martina told her that she would meet her at 8am on Sunday and nobody had heard from her after this text message. There was very little in the way of eyewitnesses. Someone came forward and said that they thought that maybe they'd seen two men talking to Yara beside a red vehicle in the sports complex car park, 
but there was no more information than that. The police had a lot of trouble establishing where Yara might have gone when she left the gym. The gym was inside a big complex building, there were other sports halls there, there was a running track and a swimming pool too, and there were lots of doors that she could have exited from. The lead investigator, Letizia Rigueri, knowing that time was the most important thing here, immediately called out a team of tracker dogs to the gym complex to see if they would be able to track where Yara went from there. The dogs were able to pick up Yara's smell, and her family were devastated when they started tracking in the opposite direction to the Gambarasio home. They tracked Yara's scent to a smaller town in the opposite direction to her home. This little hamlet was called Mapello. Officers back at the station were analysing Yara's phone signal, and they confirmed to Rigari that her phone had pinged in Mapello at 6.49pm that evening. After this ping, her phone had gone dark, it had either been turned off or it had died. The police knew that Yara's parents had been home around that time because that's when they tried to get hold of Yara, and then they'd called the police. But despite this, they questioned everyone in the family first. Their interviews didn't flag anything suspicious, the family were incredibly normal, and there didn't appear to be anything that suggested that they had anything to do with Yara's disappearance. The police really did do excellent work at trying to find Yara in those first few days. Almost as soon as it was revealed that she had been in Mapello, the police secured warrants to wiretap hundreds of phones of potential suspects in the Mapello area. These were people who knew Yara, people with criminal records, and people who were on the sex offenders register. Teams of officers trawled through thousands of phone records to try and match names to each wiretapped phone. On the day of Yara's disappearance, approximately 15,000 people had passed through Mapello, and the police did everything they could to try and put a name to each of those individuals. Then, an officer listening in on the selection of wiretapped phones heard a horrifying statement. The man on the phone, Mohammed Fikri, said the words, Forgive me, Lord, I did not kill her. Within a week of Yara's disappearance, the police had arrested their first suspect. They caught Mohammed Fikri trying to board a ferry to Tangiers in his work van. When police searched his van, they found a bloodstained mattress in the back of it. Fikri had been working in Mapello at a builder's yard on the day that Yara had disappeared, and the media went wild with this story, labelling him as a foreign murderer, someone who had come to their country and killed one of their daughters. This was all despite the fact that Yara had still not been found and the police were still only investigating her disappearance and not a potential murder. Then, much to the media's dismay, Fikri was quickly released from police custody with no charge. The blood in the back of the van was not Yara's. In fact, it appeared that the blood was not even human. Adding to that, the intercepted telephone call had been mistranslated from Fikri's native language of Arabic to Italian and he hadn't said anything about killing or not killing a girl. It's still a bit strange what the blood was. I mean, fair enough, not a crime. But I just want to say having any bloody mattress, maybe more so if it's not human in the back of a van, it's quite weird. Yeah, it is quite weird. And also the fact that he was like trying to flee the country um, back to Morocco was just, yeah, also very, very odd. But yeah, the police felt um, that he wasn't a suspect. And the media really genuinely, and we kind of get into it a little bit later, but the media were like furious at Rigari for not pursuing him as a lead because they really, in their eyes, like he was like the perfect suspect in this because he was just like a brown male who had like come into their country do you know what i mean like the media you know how the media sensationalize things well it's just xenophobia isn't it mm-hmm. completely so 
As the months passed, the Gambarasio family felt the enormous weight of each passing day that Yara wasn't found. Hundreds and thousands of volunteers searched the fields and mountains around them, but nobody found Yara or any of Yara's belongings. It honestly always just blows my mind, like, how people can disappear. Like, I know it sounds like such a basic thing to say, but just hearing you say there that, like, hundreds of people were searching, it is just crazy, isn't it, that just like that, someone can be gone and not be able to be found like it scares me so much yeah it's completely terrifying it is i think especially in this case and cases like this where the police actually kind of have an area where they're searching like they knew where her phone signal had last pinged and that is where they were searching like they had like a confined area do you know what i mean it wasn't like they were just searching the whole of italy they had a very specific hamlet like a very very small town um and yeah it's just crazy that they weren't they weren't able to find her in those first few months it's just yeah like you said it's really terrifying and the media didn't help the gambarasio family at all they turned the entire investigation into a soap opera and each night they played dramatized reenactments of what might have happened to yara and interviewed people who had known her this put an enormous amount of pressure and publicity onto the gambarasio family and the harsh glare of the media horrified them They began to isolate themselves inside their home and shut all the curtains and blinds away from the prying cameras. People began to think that the family weren't acting how they thought they should be acting, but they didn't understand that these poor parents and Yara's poor siblings were just trying to grieve and process the events unfolding around them in their own way. They had always been an incredibly private family, and the sudden national attention on them was incredibly daunting. They were asked if they wanted to attend a torch-lit procession to raise awareness for Yara, but they declined. Instead, they had nuns come to their home and they had a religious service instead. It is interesting, isn't it, here? Like, I can kind of tell a little bit from the way you're speaking that they weren't involved in this crime. Um, But I just find it interesting how, like, the behaviour, like, with hindsight of knowing if I'm right, that they're not involved, like, we see their behaviour as, like, justified and, like, just trying to shy away from the media and private and stuff, but actually we would interpret that very same behaviour as, like, really dodgy if we thought they had been involved, you know what I mean? Like, um, not going to, like, a vigil or something. Um, We'd interpret as, like, oh, my God, why wouldn't you want to do that? And, you know, you could tell straight away that that they were involved in the crime. Like, I think it just goes to show how much like people's bias influences like the behavior they see. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And and I and I totally agree. I'm not, it's not to say that I wouldn't have maybe seen that happen live on the telly, you know, if this was now and I wouldn't have thought the same thing. Um I think also it was to do with the way the Italian uh, media kind of portrayed them as well and they they did turn everything into like this massive giant kind of like reality tv show style thing and the fact that the Gambarasio family weren't speaking to the media like it didn't play well for them because they wanted them to come on and do their talk shows and things like that and I think it was just like so so difficult for the family but there were things like you said that you know that the, everyone interpreted in the wrong way like I think in one particular interview it was like they only ever did one one or two media appearances um and in one of them Maura Yara's mother was kind of accused of like rolling her eyes during the press conference but I guess looking at it you can tell looking at it now you can tell you know that she was very awkward and she's clearly just nervous and she was obviously just very very tense but yeah I'm not to say it's not to say that if you saw that live you wouldn't think that she was rolling her eyes yeah definitely So yeah, like I said, the media wanted anything they could get from this family who, yeah, hadn't given them any information. Um, But 
as I said, the family were very nervous. They were unsure how to act and they had no idea what to say. When they did their first press conference, Fulvio, Yara's father, spoke only for a few sentences and simply said that he would like the public to help his family return to normality. He stated that his family's values were love, respect and honesty and that because of those values, they would not be giving any media interviews. The family only broke their private and reserved state to share photographs of Yara with the media in order to raise awareness and to make sure that people knew who to look out for. They were utterly desperate to find out where their daughter was, but as the weeks turned into months, there was still no news. Then, on February 26, 2011, three months to the day since Yara had last been seen, a middle-aged man found Yara's body. The man had been flying his radio-controlled model plane in the small town of Cignolo di Sola, a town 10 kilometres south of Brembate de Sopra. The town itself was very built up and industrial, and so the man had decided to venture into some fields to practice flying his model plane. His plane malfunctioned and fell into some tall weeds, and the man walked over to recover it. As he picked up his plane out of the weeds, a pile of old clothing caught his eye, at first, he thought someone had just dumped the clothing there, but then he saw a pair of shoes. That must be so haunting to find a child's body. Like, you can't even imagine, can you, just what... Like, that would... Oh, just a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah, yeah, no, you can't imagine it. You can't imagine it at all. So, when Ruggeri, the lead investigator, arrived at the crime scene, she found the body in an advanced state of decomposition... She said that her gut reaction was that it was Yara, though, because of the black bomber jacket that was identical to the one police knew Yara had been wearing when she had gone missing, and underneath the jacket was Yara's Hello Kitty sweatshirt. A search from the crime scene also revealed Yara's iPod, her house keys, the SIM card and battery from her LG phone, but they were not able to locate her actual phone. So, just to give me some context here, like, how remote was this? I mean... Was it in the original search area? Why had it been so many months before anyone found her body? Like, I'm guessing it wasn't a very well-walked path or... Yeah, I don't know. It just seems surprising to find a body having looked for one for so long. Just, yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, So the area around where these fields and like weeds were was built up. It was like an industrial area. But right next to this field was like a nightclub that was very, very busy on like Friday and Saturday nights. Um, We kind of get into it a little bit later, but I think there's some quite clear evidence that maybe her body hadn't been there the whole time that it had been moved. Um, It's difficult to say though, because the top half of her body was in a very severe state of decomposition, uh, but the bottom half of her body was quote unquote, I think, I think the phrase was like in in impeccable condition or something gross like that, like something really insensitive like that. But it's hard to, to say, I think, as we kind of go through the story, you might kind of get more of a idea of what we're kind of working with here and whether or not possibly this wasn't the initial crime scene and whether or not her body had been moved. Okay, got you. So Professor Cristina Cataneo, one of Italy's most famous forensic pathologists, conducted the autopsy on Yara. The cause of death was determined to be from exposure, although it was noted that she had also suffered multiple injuries caused by a sharp weapon. Her clothing had several puncture wounds from a sharp weapon, and although they noted that her bra had been unhooked, there were no signs of sexual assault. Forensic testing revealed that there was traces of lime in Yara's respiratory passages and the presence of jute on her clothing. 
So for reference, jute is a vegetable fibre typically used to make rope or burlap sacks. And for clarity, the lime found in Yara's pass uh, respiratory passages is like the material lime, not like the fruit lime. The other items found at the crime scene were also forensically tested and the forensic team were able to find two DNA samples, one from Yara's phone battery and the other from Yara's black gloves. Unfortunately, these DNA samples didn't match any of the samples the police had on their files. They did, however, think that they could narrow down the suspect pool due to the presence of the lime and the jute. They believed that the perpetrator was in the building industry. For two months, the police investigated this murder to no avail. Then, in April 2011, the forensics team retested Yara's clothing, and this time they found traces of male DNA on Yara's underwear. They surmised that the murderer had nicked himself during a struggle and had left the drop of DNA on Yara's underwear by accident. Ruggeri and her team had their first suspect. They named this suspect Inyoto Uno, which translated to Unknown One. In late May 2011, the Gambarasio family held a funeral for Yara. The ceremony took place in the sports hall at the gym, where Yara had spent so much of her spare time. It was the place that she had been so happy at. The president of Italy, Giorgio Napolitano, spoke at Yara's funeral and gave his condolences. The police worked in teams to gather as many DNA samples as they possibly could in order to test it against the sample from Unknown One. One team took DNA samples from family members, another team took DNA samples from individuals at Yara's school, another team took samples from Yara's friends, and they of course took samples from anyone who would allow them to from the gym that she trained in. Other officers spent their time focusing on the phone records and cross-referencing all the mobile phones that had moved from Brambate to Sopra, where Yara had last been seen at the gym, to Cignolo di Sola, where Yara's body had been found on the 26th of November 2010. For each individual whose phone was found to have pinged in both locations on the 26th of November 2010, the police located that individual and requested they give a DNA sample to cross-check with the sample found on Yara's underwear. The police and the Carabinare worked incredibly hard to pull together as much of a database of DNA as they could to try and find Yara's murderer. It was slow work, but it was working progress nonetheless. However, this process wasn't just slow, it was also very expensive. It took geneticists in Parma, Pavia and Rome approximately six hours to turn three or four samples of DNA into a computer-generated sample that could be compared easily on a computer. The cost of this machinery ran into the millions, making the hunt for Unknown One, the man who had murdered Yara, one of the most expensive manhunts in Italian history. Blimey. Within a couple of months, the police had collected thousands of DNA samples from the locals in the area where the Gambarasio family lived, and also from those whose phone had pinged in the area near where Yara's body had been found on the day she had been murdered. These samples, however, had not matched the sample of the murderer's DNA from the crime scene, and so the police decided to broaden their DNA searches even further. Ruggeri knew that most of the time killers left their victims in places that were well known to them, and so they decided that their next point of call would be to take samples from even more people in Cignolo di Sola. As I mentioned earlier when I was just speaking to Sal, close to the scrubland where Yara's body had been found was a nightclub called Sabi Mobili, which translates to quicksand in English. In the spring of 2011, officers stood outside the nightclub and took DNA samples on Friday and Saturday nights when the club was most busy. They chose this club not only due to its close location to the crime scene, but also because Quicksand was known for its violence. 
Early in January of that same year, 2011, a man had been murdered just outside the club, and there were often violent fights during its busy periods. The good thing about Quicksand was that each member who visited needed a membership card, and therefore the club had a really useful record of all its patrons. Amazingly, this club gave the police their second big break in this case. Okay, so remember that I said geneticists were turning the DNA samples into computer-generated like visual samples so that it would be easier to compare them to the DNA from the crime scene? Yep, yep, with you there. So one of the samples taken from the club was visually strikingly similar to the sample taken from their main suspect, Unknown One. This DNA sample belonged to a man named Damiano Guarinoni. The police interviewed him, but he was quickly ruled out as a suspect as he had been in South America at the time of the murder. Um, I was going to say that seems surprising given that it looked very similar. Um, but now I'm wondering, has he got a brother or something? Oh, you're so good, Sal. <laughs> yeah, so basically... Um... That based on the similarity of it, they knew that um, this guy was most definitely a relative of Unknown One, um, just given how similar the DNA samples were. So they started looking into Guarinoni's like, family tree, um, and they were amazed at what they discovered. Damiano's mother, Aurora Zani, had worked in the home of the Gambarasio family for 10 years. During the years that Yara had been growing up, Aurora Zani had visited Yara's home at least twice a week for almost a decade. Oh my god, that's crazy. So, the police could not ignore this coincidence, and so they called Aurora in for an interview. She was a plain, middle-aged woman who spoke very highly of the Gambarasio family as employers. She spoke of how she had been very fond of Yara, and the little girl had often asked Aurora to go and watch her during her gymnastics competitions. She said that although she had stopped working for the family before 2011, they had maintained a good relationship. She couldn't understand how she'd found herself at the centre of murder investigation into someone she said that she had been so incredibly fond of. She said that it was the worst thing that could have happened to her. Yeah, okay, so at this point I'm still not thinking it's her. Obviously she seems to have like the knowledge to know Yara, but I'm not thinking that it was a middle-aged woman that killed her at this point, is it? No, you're definitely right. Sometimes when you say these things, it's like, have you been reading the script on the Google Drive? (laughs) I have not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the police weren't convinced either, but they did have Aurora Zani and her son, Damiano Guadagnoni, followed, and they made sure to intercept each phone call between the mother and her son. They continuously brought them both in for questioning and put an enormous amount of pressure on both of them to reveal what happened to Yara, but neither of them appeared to have any information to help the police with their investigation. But, so we know he wasn't in the country, and she's a, you know, middle-aged lady who, just statistically speaking, are very unlikely to murder. But based on the fact that they're still following them, I'm guessing there's no other siblings or sons then, is there not? Yeah, so there is. <laughs> so so there is. So um, after a few months, basically, Ruggeri said that she kind of had to resign to the fact that it was just a complete crazy coincidence that Guarinoni's DNA sample was so similar to that of unknown ones and that his mother was the woman who had spent nearly a decade in the home that yara grew up with like that part was a coincidence um so they stopped pursuing aurora but they didn't stop looking into damiano um because they still believed that he was related to unknown one in some way and yes they did manage to find someone else that he was related to which we'll get into 
So by this time, almost a full year had passed since Yara's body had been found. So they really have spent quite a lot of time investigating and taking all these samples and looking at phones and wiretaps and all the rest of it. The police, having spent millions on DNA sampling and investigating this, were under a huge amount of pressure to find the murderer. Rigari especially was under an immense amount of scrutiny and media attacks. Politicians wrote open letters demanding that Rugeri be removed from the investigation, with one letter citing that she should be replaced with, quote, someone of proven experience. Others called her out for collecting too many DNA samples from thousands of random individuals, citing that it was haphazard and incompetent. Rugeri, who had put so much of her time into this investigation, accepted the criticism, but would not succumb to defamation of her character, and she in fact filed a lawsuit against that politician who had written an open letter that had characterised her as someone who had a, quote, low technical and moral profile. I'm referencing this because not only was Rugeri trying incredibly hard to solve this near-impossible murder, she was also fighting against a mountain of sexism from the media and politicians alike, People categorised her as incompetent because she was female, and not only that, because she was a single mother. Ruggeri also commented that she believed that she was being targeted because she had made the decision to drop the investigation into Mohammed Fikri, the first potential suspect we discussed right at the start. The media had really wanted to run the story about a Moroccan labourer who had come to Italy and committed such a heinous crime. It was a good headline for them. Ruggeri said that she found the criticism ferocious and very tough, but still, she pushed forward and tried her hardest to ignore the horrific comments circling about her. She focused on the DNA sampling from Guadagnoni and went back to the family tree that her team had been creating. For his reporting in The Guardian, Tobias Jones said that he saw a copy of that family tree and he said there were literally hundreds of names, dates and places of birth and detailed annotations regarding the relationships between each of the members of the family. The family tree dated back as far as 1716. Which all sounds like good and complicated, but ultimately it can't be someone, it must be someone who's very closely related for the DNA to look that similar. Do you know what I mean? Like it gets 50% less similar every time, like a relation is removed. So like it's good, it's all well and good at going back to the 1700s or whatever, but obviously that isn't who did it. <laughs> it's so funny because that's exactly what I thought when I was researching it I was just like literally that like oh that's all well and good but what is the point in that (laughs) yeah so the police worked through the family tree and they started working through trying to collect DNA samples from the people on that tree it was easier than they thought it would be as the families all lived in the small village of Gorno and had done for many generations they worked through and collected samples from the living and then attempted to also get samples from the deceased too They used very imaginative ways to ensure they could collect as many samples as possible to test against unknown ones' DNA. But I'm just not following why at this point. Like, if it's remarkably similar to... um, His name escapes me. Damiano? Yeah. Yeah, so if it's remarkably similar to him, I just can't imagine why they suddenly need to be getting, like, DNA samples from deceased people in the family. Uh... I can't really tell you why without giving it away, so you'll just have to hold tight on that question. (laughs) Okay. So they took a sample from Damiano Guadagnoni's father, which was also a close match to Unknown One. They looked at the family tree and tracked down Guadagnoni's father's brother. His name was Giuseppe Guadagnoni. 
Giuseppe had actually passed away in 1999, but investigators went to his widow in September 2011. So I just mentioned that they used imaginative techniques to obtain DNA samples, and this was one of those occasions. They found two stamps that Giuseppe had licked, one that was used for his driver's licence, and another on a postcard that he had sent to a relative many years before. The results from that DNA sample brought with it the third breakthrough in this case. Geneticists said that Giuseppe Guadagnoni was the father of their murder suspect, Unknown One. Okay, so it is either Damiano's... Right, so Damiano's uncle is the father... So by proxy, it should be Damiano's cousin, or unless there's something Ill- illegitimate going on, then possibly also it could be like a half-brother, really. Do you know this story or something? No, I've just got a bit of understanding about, about genetics. I did, I did study it as part of my degree. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I thought you were going to be blown away by this, Sally, but you're just guessing them everything before I get to it. <laughs> Oh, sorry. I am. I am gripped. (laughs) (laughs) Good to hear. (laughs) Um, But yes, what you're saying is correct. Yes, it will by default be one of Damiano's cousins. Yes. So quickly, the police worked on the family tree for Giuseppe. He had been married to Laura for decades and the couple had had three children, a girl and two boys. The police focused on the two sons, Pierre Paolo and Diego. Both gave up DNA samples But surprisingly, neither of them were a match to Unknown One. The officers were stumped. Laura and Giuseppe hadn't had any other children. They came to the conclusion that Giuseppe must have had a son either before his marriage to Laura or a child as a result of an affair. Okay, so it's not his son that someone knew about, but wait, Nad, what was the name of the woman who worked for them? Damiano's mum, what's she called? Aurora. So did Giuseppe and Aurora have a child together who somehow knew about Yara? No, but that is exactly what I thought when I was researching this. That is 100% what I thought. I thought it would all be tied together with a nice little bow, but no, Aurora has nothing to do with this anymore. But good thinking. <laughs> okay. So given that Laura and Giuseppe had been married since they were quite young and Laura had no idea about any other children of Giuseppe's, the police started working with the theory that Giuseppe had had an affair. They started working on another investigation to track down a middle-aged woman who they believed had had an affair with Giuseppe Guadagnoni 30 or 40 years before, a woman who they believed was the mother of Unknown One. As I'm sure you can imagine, this was no easy feat. I mean, where do you even start on a task like that? It was made even more difficult because the mountain villages where they were searching for this mystery woman were very closed off from the prying eyes of the police from the Bergamo Alps. Also, how devastating for Giuseppe's wife to discover that not only does he probably have a child that she didn't know about, and presumably an affair she didn't know about, but also that that child is like the central suspect for murder investigation. Like, who knows if she knew all of that at the time, but what a horrible thing to discover when, like, about your partner and they're not even around for you to, like, question anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like, when stuff happens in a relationship, you just want to understand, like, why, don't you? And to not be able to actually do that and say, like, you know, why did you never tell me? Who were they? Did you even know? Like, must have been really, really difficult to go through. 
Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. She, at this point in the investigation, though, like she didn't know, and like she doesn't find out basically for a really long time. But yeah, I agree with you. It is really, really harrowing. Um, but basically during this part of the investigation, the police were just looking for this woman, but they weren't telling anyone why. So they were going into like these mountain villages that were very kind of like closed off communities. And um, these communities, they didn't kind of want to be in the public eye. They found it confusing as to why the police were taking DNA samples from the elderly women in these communities um, during kind of their investigation for a th- into a, like the murder of a 13 year old girl the police didn't tell the locals why they were looking into these elderly women um and this kind of secrecy embedded like a lot of fear within the communities because they now felt that maybe there was like a murderer living within their tight-knit circles so the police didn't handle this well at all yeah but equally um i mean like firstly i they, i guess they do need to keep stuff about the investigation confidential and secondly being really open like I don't know, would that have helped? Would people have been forthcoming? Or actually, would it have led to, like, more, like, protectionist? Like, if someone in the community knew, for example, that, um, like, say, one of their great friends actually had had a son with a man kind of, like, a, a legitimate relationship, like, if that's how it was viewed in those communities, like, you might have then found people sort of basically protecting their friends if they were suddenly like, oh, God, like, what if it's X and what if they're looking for her son or blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm not saying they did handle it well. I just can imagine it would have been quite a difficult line to get right between, yeah, saying nothing and saying something. If it's kind of a quite closed-off community, I think it probably could have been difficult either way. Yeah, that, to be to be fair, like, I can't, I can't, I can't say anything against that. I think that's a really fair point. Um, I think I'm just looking at it from the point of view of like these poor people who just kind of had these police like walk into their communities and kind of turn everything upside down. But yeah, you are right. Like, what were they supposed to say? Like, we're looking for someone who had an affair. And then, yeah, I guess it's very offensive. Like, we want to take your DNA because we think that you might have had an affair with Giuseppe. Like, yeah, I get what you're saying. They probably, it probably was a hard line for them to cross. Also, like, a hard line to cross, but it could genuinely have damaged it. Like, at this point, the murderer is on the loose, do you know what I mean? And by going in and saying, oh, we're looking for blah, blah, or, like, relatives of this, or someone who fits this description, like, actually, as well, they could have very easily spooked the person who they were really looking for. Like, if they'd have kind of heard through the community and been like, oh, God, actually, the police are on to me like assuming that the murderer may know that he's Giuseppe's son so I think yeah a lot a lot going on there for them to manage yeah yeah I agree I agree I'm I'm with you on this one (laughs) uh so didn't really matter anyway because uh the DNA samples didn't flag up anything and they couldn't find the woman that they were looking for uh they went back and they questioned Laura Giuseppe's widow And she said that Giuseppe took a trip to a spa resort in the south of Milan for two weeks every May from the early 1960s onwards. Each time he took that trip, he went without his wife. Ruggeri's team spent months going through all the records from that trip to locate every woman who had also visited the spa during the times that Giuseppe was there. They also spent months searching through orphanages and homes for, quote, fallen women to test the single mothers hidden in those homes. None of their samples, however, matched with unknown one. They changed their searches to look for potential married women, 
Divorce was only legalised in Italy in 1970, and so the chances that unknown one's mother was married and had given birth to a child as a result of an affair was not something that was unusual in those times. Many couples did stay married, despite infidelities. So by this point in the investigation, over two full years had passed since Yara's body had been discovered, and the Gambariasio family were understandably feeling increasingly more frustrated and upset with how the investigation was going. They were also not really kept up to date with any information regarding the investigation, and nobody had explained to them why the police were now searching for a woman when they knew the DNA on Yara's clothing was male. They ended up hiring their own private geneticist who was able to review the investigation and explain to them what was happening. The geneticist was able to explain to the Gambarasio family that short tendon repeat regions, known as STRs, and which are sequences of DNA, were compared between the sample from Giuseppe Guadagnoni and the sample from Unknown One. They said that due to the small amount of DNA they had from Giuseppe, due to the fact he was deceased and they'd only managed to take his DNA from old stamps, meant that they had only been able to compare 13 STRs with Unknown One, and usually the confirmation of paternity requires at least 15 STR regions to be compared. Their private geneticist said that it was possible that Giuseppe wasn't even the father of Unknown One, and the only way that they would know for certain if the police were wasting their time trying to find ex-lovers of Giuseppe's would be to exhume his body and take more DNA. This geneticist campaigned for almost a full year to get Giuseppe's body exhumed and a new DNA sample tested, and in March of 2013, now three years after Yara's body had been discovered, Giuseppe Guadagnoni's body was exhumed and his DNA was extracted and tested. Oh my god. This test had 29 STR regions that were compared to Unknown One, and it was confirmed that he was the father of Unknown One. The exhumation of Giuseppe's remains and the confirmation that he was the father of the murder suspect in Yara's case sparked a rumour around the local communities that the police were now looking for Giuseppe's former lover, someone who had had his child. The media jumped on this and started uncovering infidelities and quote-unquote illegitimate children from various villages in the local area. This was particularly damaging given that it was an area that was by and large populated by traditional Catholic families. Um, I thought that those rumours had already been sparked, but I guess like that's not the same as the media picking up on it. Um, but yeah, I don't know why I sort of assumed that was already what the kind of word on the street in the local communities was. Uh, yeah, like I think a little bit. I think, yeah, people were kind of like questioning, like, oh, is this why they're looking into women? But no one had kind of like come out and said it. But obviously when the media printed it, um, well, they hadn't just printed it, they'd investigated it and they were literally naming people and they were naming couples who had children outside of wedlock or they all had had uh, children as a result of affairs and things like that. They were literally ruining families' lives in these Italian communities oh. and like naming and almost like naming and shaming these illegitimate children. That's what they were calling them. Oh, right. Okay. Got you now. God, that's horrible. Yeah, they just awful. They didn't handle this in a, in a very sensitive way at all. So for another year, the search for the mystery mother continued, but it wouldn't be until June 2014 that the team would get their next break in the case. One of Ruggeri's lead investigators, Marshal Giovanni Massorino, had been interviewing Giuseppe's friends and former co-workers and had learned that he had been quite a womaniser back in his day. Mossarino learned that Giuseppe had once told a co-worker that he had, quote, gotten a young girl into some trouble. Then, in June of 2014, one of Mossarino's contacts gave him what they wanted, a name. Esther Arzufi. 
Wow, that must have felt so like such a insane moment, given like how many years they've been res- looking into this case and even how long they've just been pursuing like this lead. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think it was it was a massive break for them. Um, so Esther had been a neighbor of Giuseppe's in the late 1960s, and in 1966, when she had been just 19 years old, she married a man named Gianni Bossetti. Esther was a vibrant, beautiful young woman who oozed confidence. She was very different from shy, introverted Gianni Bassetti, a man who had been orphaned when he had been just a child and who had suffered depression for many years. Mossarino's source told him that Esther had taken the bus every day to work, and who was the driver of that bus? Giuseppe Guadagnoni. Unbelievably, Esther Arzufi's DNA had already been taken by the police back in July of 2012, a full two years before. They went back and checked the DNA comparison and found that a geneticist in Rome had accidentally compared Esther's DNA sample to Yara's DNA and not to the DNA from Unknown One, and so at the time it had shown as not being a match. They recompared Esther's DNA to the sample from Unknown One, and this time it was a match. Esther Arzufi was the mother of Unknown One. Oh my god, what are the chances of that mistake being made? I mean, firstly, just ridiculous negligence and you wonder like how many others were wrong and especially given like the flack the police had got when actually their strategy would have bang on got them to the right place anyway. But like statistically, what are the chances of that? That like, I mean, they're literally looking for a needle in a haystack here and they found it. And yet there was a mistake that meant they didn't find it. Like, that's just insane. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Like, I just can't. But it's kind of infuriating as well. Like, I understand that they were they were, they were really dealing with huge, like, thousands of DNA samples. Like, I can completely get it. But, like, two years, two years of trying to hunt down this woman and her DNA was already on their files. You know, it just seems so, yeah, unbelievable, just crazy and just, like, really... It's a big cock-up. It's a really big cock-up. Yeah, because really, like, at that point, obviously I know that it, like, was central to the investigation, but at that stage, when they were trying to, like, cross-reference these women with Unknown One, like, Yara's DNA shouldn't really even come into it, but, and it's quite terrifying that that sort of mistake can happen in a murder investigation. Yeah, it is. And yes, you're completely correct. Like, her DNA shouldn't have been on this visual computer thing. Like, they weren't comparing anyone's DNA to hers. They knew who she was. Yeah, totally. I don't know if there is any scientific reason for why her DNA sample was also being matched against these people, but I can't assume there was. All I can imagine is that it was, like, a, a really just awful, tragic mistake, but a mistake nonetheless. And, you know, there was no reason for her DNA to be on the system. But I, I don't know. I can't think of any reason why they would be comparing DNA to her. Yeah, I totally agree. So uh, the police dug into Esther's background and they found out that in the autumn of 1970, Esther had given birth to twins, a boy and a girl. She had named the boy Massimo Giuseppe Bozzetti. I wonder where the Giuseppe came from in that name. <laughs> it's just a solid Italian name, Sally. <laughs> So by 2014, Massimo was around 43 years old and he had three children of his own. He lived in Mapello with his wife and children. And if you can remember, Mapello was the hamlet near Yara's hometown where the last signal from her cell phone had pinged on the 26th of November 2010. Oh yeah, I didn't remember that, but yeah. 
God, also, I just already, I know we don't know what's happened yet, but he's got three children. Like, what? why would he be hurting another child? Yeah, I know, I know. So, Rigari and her team started working on ways to get Massimo Bassetti's DNA to compare it to the DNA sample taken from Yara's underwear. They set up a fake roadblock on June 15th, 2014 to breathalyse drivers. This way, they could take his DNA sample without raising any suspicions. When officers stopped Massimo Bazzetti, they breathalyzed him once and then claimed that their machine hadn't worked. They asked him to once again breathe into the machine. This resulted in them having two good samples for DNA testing and they were both immediately sent to the lab. The results concluded what investigators had been hoping for. Massimo Giuseppe Bazzetti was an exact match for unknown one. They had finally found their murder suspect. I don't understand there why, like, they had to set all of that up. Like, if you've got two familial matches of DNA that would suggest he is the suspect, why can't you just ask the man for a DNA sample? Like, it's a murder investigation and their DNA was found on the body. Like, I, I'm just shocked you can't just go on up to this guy and be like, give us a bit of your hair. Or whatever. <laughs> no, I get what you're saying. Uh, I think ultimately they didn't want to raise suspicions and they didn't want to risk the chance of him fleeing. Uh, Probably, you know, by that point, he, in their eyes, maybe he thought that he'd got away with it. um, And therefore it kind of wasn't even on his radar that the police might be looking into him. Like, you've got to think it's like four and almost like four and a half years since since she'd gone missing. So, yeah, I think maybe in their minds, they just wanted to take every precaution to make sure he didn't do a runner. Um. But yeah, I agree. Like it does seem like a little bit excessive. Um, all I can think of is they just they just didn't they maybe assumed he was a flight risk. That's all I can think of. So on June sixteenth, twenty fourteen, Mazimo Bassetti was arrested and charged with the murder of Yara Gambrasio. The police interviews revealed a lot of information that was useful to their investigation. Bassetti had spent a lot of time hanging out around Yara's home. He often used the gym car park to park his car in, and he often ate out at the pizzeria at the end of Yara's road. A search of his computer also revealed some troubling searches. Most notably, it appeared that he had a desire for prepubescent girls. Can I just say as well how horrible this must have been for his family, like for his wife? Imagine four and a half years later after like a murder that you she would have read about, would have known about, and I guess for most of the country had probably sort of not forgotten about it but moved on suddenly like for the police to turn up and arrest your husband for that oh yeah massively massively i think in general this case ruined so many families lives like it it ruined 100 percent the gambrasio family it ruined like you said uh the bossetti family um you've got to think about poor Gianni Bossetti who had no idea that his wife had had affairs and that, you know, his twins weren't even biologically his, you know? It is just awful. And also, actually, after this investigation and everything else, it turned out that Gianni Bossetti's youngest child was also not biologically his either. And so his wife had had, yeah, three children with him and none of them had been his. So, yeah, I completely agree. And also, like, Laura, like you you said earlier, like, Laura found out that her husband, you know, Giuseppe, had been having affairs as well. So, yeah, this case 100% ruined so many people's lives. Mm, Big time. And I think a little bit, we're getting sidetracked, but I do think some of this probably speaks possibly to, I don't know, what happens when, like, divorce and separation is so frowned upon within societies. Yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Um, 
so where did I get to? Uh, yeah, so the police also scoured um, Bozzetti's phone records from November 2010, and they found that on the night that Yara had disappeared, his phone had registered as being present in Brambate de Sopra, where Yara had disappeared from. His phone had then been switched off at 5.45pm and it wasn't turned back on until 7.34 the next morning. That is terrifying that they can look back that far and get information that that's that granular. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, I had no idea that they could do that either. So Massimo Bassetti was held in custody awaiting his trial. Although many locals and the media believed that in the face of the DNA evidence, Bassetti would end up pleading guilty. However, as time went on, he did not plead guilty, and then again, when the prosecution asked for an extension before the start of the trial, it became clear that maybe their case wasn't quite a slam dunk as they had first implied it was. It's important to note that this next bit of information surrounding the legitimacy of the evidence against Massimo Bassetti was taken from a report that I read on a website that has a lot of information on it, but that is realistically a website to promote aid and help for Massimo Bassetti and highlight the discrepancies in the evidence against him. That isn't to say that the information that I'm about to tell you is wrong or that websites that support defendants that are seemingly in place to, you know, fight for justice or things like that. It's not saying those websites display incorrect or falsified information, but I just think that everything that I say next, maybe let's take with a pinch of salt and just kind of consider. So, at the trial, it was revealed that one piece of, in inverted commas, evidence was that fibres found on Yara's body were deemed to be, quote, compatible with fibres of the seats in Bazzetti's truck. The prosecution, however, didn't volunteer the information that the fibres were also compatible with thousands of similar trucks and buses. Another piece of evidence presented by the prosecution was a grainy CCTV image that showed a truck supposedly circling the car park near the gym at the time of Yara's disappearance, compared to a clear image of Bassetti's truck. The truck and the CCTV footage didn't show a licence plate and it was really unclear if there were any similarities between the two. Further evidence also from the prosecution was an eyewitness who said that they, quote, might have seen someone who might have been Bassetti sitting with someone who might have been Yara in a vehicle that might have been Bassetti's. The most conclusive piece of evidence against Bassetti was, of course, his DNA on Yara's underwear. However, it was revealed at the trial that the biological source of the, this DNA could not be determined, insomuch that it wasn't clear whether the DNA was from blood, saliva, sweat or semen. The defence argued that if the DNA source wasn't good enough to identify its biological source, then it must be disputed whether it was a good enough sample to correctly identify who the DNA belonged to. Absolute rubbish. A match is a match. Like, I can understand, like, it might not be the greatest amount or the greatest quality, but a match for DNA is a match for DNA. Like, it's so unlikely that it would incorrectly match. That's just such an infuriating defence. Okay. It's good that you said that because I was kind of like, oh, maybe they've got a point. But that's good to know that, yeah, I do get what you're saying. A match is a match. I mean, I don't know. And I did genuinely try to look into this and I got lost into this massive hole of like nuclear DNA versus like mitochondrial DNA and all this kind of stuff. And, and there's a lot of information out there relating to that specifically to this case. But I couldn't understand any of it because none of it seemed to point to like a clear answer of whether or not it was legitimate or not but i do get what you're saying it doesn't matter that if the dna comes from blood sweat semen or anything else what you're saying is if it matches his dna it matches his dna regardless of whether it comes from any of those other sources yeah like i'm not a complete expert but you'd think so um like i know sort of big chunks of dna are 
identical anyway and stuff but i just think like technology is advanced enough now that this is a fairly concrete science i'd have thought like you know anyone knows otherwise i just yeah it just sounds to me like i don't know quite an infuriating defense particularly if you think the process we've been through to get here like in terms of um like his parents being partial matches and all of that like it's been a very convoluted way but actually what that means is you've verified the dna match of like 100 bloody relatives on the way it's not sort of like it was just one like thing with him Mm. like they've tested him in the first place and like oh you know if we think we found someone like we went to quite extreme lengths to identify this man no, yeah, I think that's a really good point. And actually, like, I agree with you, like, as I just said, I don't know anything about it, but saying it out loud then, like, it does seem to make sense, doesn't it? Like, you never read or I never read when I'm researching these cases, like, this was a DNA match that came from a blood sample or a semen sample. Like, if it's DNA, it's DNA. It doesn't necessarily matter where it came from or how it got there. You know, they can match DNA from hair samples and tiny little bits of skin cells and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm sure that you are right. And I think that is right. I mean, yeah, if anyone knows indifferently, please do let us know. But to me, I think that does sound quite legitimate that DNA is DNA regardless of the source of it. However, on this point, Yara's body had reportedly been left out in the open for 90 days after her death. And this is kind of what I mentioned earlier. Um, But there are no scientific studies at all that present information or research that says that DNA can last that long when exposed to the elements. The longest amount of time that has been recorded in a published paper is 60 days. So this seemed to put kind of like a big fat question mark next to the assertion from the prosecution that the DNA retrieved from the crime scene was, quote, of outstandingly good quality. Um, And of course, whether the DNA was left on the body at the time of the murder at all, given the length of time it had been exposed to the elements. Adding to this even further, there was an abundance of DNA on Yara's jacket sleeve that was matched to Sylvia Brenner, a coach at Yara's gym. This wouldn't necessarily have been that weird considering that she had been to the gym that day that she disappeared. But what is weird is that he strenuously denied ever having physical contact with Yara on the day she went missing. It was suggested that Yara's body had also been moved and that the scrubland where she had been found was not in fact the crime scene. This is kind of what I said to you earlier, Sal. It's the fact that the top half of Yara's clothing was almost completely um, impeccable. Oh, actually, I think I said it the other way around. But yeah, the top half of Yara's clothing was completely impeccable, but her bottom half of clothing was really deteriorated. And yeah, also going back to what you said earlier there was a genuinely big question around why it had taken three entire months to find her body when it was so close to surrounding industrial buildings and if it had been left out there for the whole time then it seems quite unbelievable that someone would not have found it sooner given that there were so many search parties out there looking for her during that time so i mean i don't know how you feel about all of this yeah no i totally agree that it does seem quite strange so i think the first thing that i would kind of think is yeah I don't understand how her body can have not been found given how much how many searches there were and also this sounds really graphic but if it was quite far in the decomposition process then you actually would have thought even if someone hadn't walked across it that actually possibly someone might have like smelt it um yeah the other thing that I think is yeah okay it does seem odd then if they think it has been outside for that long that the dna would be so viable still um but to counter that 
we've already said that we're a bit suspect about whether her body was there the whole time, um, given that it hadn't been found. Um, but also, ultimately, his DNA is on her. Like, whether that's because he murdered her, it, to me, that suggests he was near her. And whether he was near her when she was alive or deceased, he still committed some kind of crime and still has some kind of answer. Like, you know, if he found her and didn't report her being there, then that in itself is a crime. Um, And, you know, he ought to know more than he's letting on to. Because, yeah, I just think if you're using the fact that, like, DNA degrades over time, then what you're saying is that he was there more recently, like, after she'd been moved. Like, yeah, I just... It seems like an odd defence to me because I feel like you're just incriminating him in another way, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I, I, I fully understand your points. I just think for me, I just, I'm so, I am so confused by this because I think there's only one bit of, of his DNA on her. I agree that's But weird. then I go back, then I go back to like, oh, like the phone records. Like, why was he in Brambante, um, Brambate de Sopra? Why did he turn his phone off? Like, yes, he has these search histories of like prepubescent girls. Like all of it does, all of that seems to point to him. But then I'm just like, but then there's only one bit of DNA evidence on him. But then does that just mean that he was super careful? And he then just, yeah, like, like kind of like the police had thought, he just nicked himself and just accidentally dropped this little bit of DNA. But then, yeah, like how was the bottom of her body um, not in a state of decomposition and the top was? I guess, yes, maybe it just, maybe, maybe he just moved it. I think it's just, I can't, I don't know where I stand on it. I think the thing to think about, like as context, is that there's loads of murders where there's no DNA. And so actually like, the fact that there's mm. only one bit, like, yes, it's quite strange. But like you say, he possibly could have been very careful. Um, and yeah, there's times when they can't find anything. So actually having like one accidental bit left, like, is that that weird? Like that to me sounds like completely plausible, plausible if you're dealing with someone who was like fully gloved and, you know, clothed and completely well planned to try and stop their DNA, but yeah, had made some sort of accidental slip up. Like you say, it could, it can be something really small, like a few skin cells, can't it? Um, so yeah, I don't know if I do think that's that weird. Yes. The difference in decomposition is quite weird, but ultimately at this stage, we have absolutely no idea what happened to her and there probably will be a reason for that. But unfortunately at the moment, like no one knows it. I don't think that can, to be suddenly a question of like who's done it it's more just what did they do yeah that's a bloody good point actually and also actually when you were just saying that i was like oh wait yeah duh if the top half of her body is in a further state of decomposition then maybe his dna was on that but like oh yeah that's true i hadn't thought about that it's exactly so if that dna you know as that study said like if dna can only last in exposure for 60 days or whatever yeah what happens if the top half of her body had been in a position where obviously it was it was subject to more decomposition than the rest of it i can, yeah okay i think i think we've just talked ourselves into <laughs> into a conclusion on that one <laughs> but yeah uh, in with regards to what where she was and all the rest of it we still don't know and like i don't think that we will ever know um because on Friday, July the 1st, 2016, Massimo Bassetti was found guilty of the murder of Yara Gambaresco by the court of Aziz of Bergamo. He was given an entire life sentence. 
from what I can tell, a life sentence in Italy comes with an indeterminate prison sentence, but the law does state that it cannot be less than 21 years for murder. So at the very minimum, Bassetti uh, will be behind bars for 21 years. Um, he has always strenuously denied any involvement and he has always protested his innocence. And as I kind of indicated to earlier, there are a lot of people out there who don't think that he did do it. Um, but I don't know, given kind of the conversation we've had, I'm kind of inclined to think that that probably there is a lot of evidence that does point to him. And like you said, with all the extensive searches into uh, his parentage and all the rest of it, it does it does kind of sound like a pretty foolproof yeah, DNA match if you will yeah and i think the circumstantial evidence sounds quite strong as well like i don't know enough about the area and how likely it is that like his phone would have pinged off the cell tower that night regardless like you know like is there only one cell tower and you know the whole place i don't know um but yeah i kind of think there's definitely enough to make you believe the story there isn't there in terms of his like search history his cell phone locations like his switching his phone off um all the kind of extensive searches they went through in terms of like the dna matching and things so yeah i think i can i can definitely don't think i feel like that uncomfortable about his conviction i can possibly probably see how people talk themselves into thinking he's innocent and who knows I might go away and google it and actually feel the same but I think (laughs) ultimately a lot of the time there isn't a lot of evidence in these things and we've definitely heard cases where people have been convicted on less um and Mm. I think if he hadn't been convicted we'd probably be sat here right now thinking how was he not it's true yeah yeah it's really true that is really really true I think it's hard, like, when I was researching it, I kind of felt like there wasn't enough evidence against him, but then, I don't know, when I've, like, as, like, seems to happen in every episode that we record, like, when when I speak it through with you, I'm just like, oh, wait, no, I think that, I think there does seem, like you said, a lot of circumstantial evidence, and just the evidence with regards to his DNA, now I've kind of, like, talked myself around to the whole, why there might not be any other DNA, and, and actually, I hadn't thought of what you said about, um, the fact that there are so many murder investigations and, and and things that happen where there isn't zero dna so yeah um i i think i am inclined to believe that maybe he did have something to do with it do do i think that maybe it was like a, a strong conviction like no not really but then i also do i do genuinely think despite kind of what the media in italy were saying at the time like i do think Ruggeri did an incredible investigation into this i'm not saying that it was flawless like it certainly wasn't the fact that there was two years that that didn't need to happen i mean the gambarasio family went through so much hell during that time just for what for them to locate a woman who they had already located two years before like i think that's awful and i and i do think that is like a really unfortunate and really yeah just horrifying for the gambarasio family but um in the end i think it's great that they did get an outcome and they did kind of get justice in some way because there are a lot of cases i think that you know especially that we've talked about on and off this podcast where justice kind of isn't served and there's always years of investigation to kind of no avails yeah i think it's like a testament to as well how long and how active police investigations go on for because i think to my mind like when people go missing and stuff you hear about it in the media for actually a relatively short period of time where it's kind of like top of the press isn't it and yeah the what everyone's talking about and I think like 
as a result, you kind of assume that the police are a little bit in line with that and that then the case maybe goes cold when you stop hearing about it and blah, but to hear in this case, like, how much work they were doing behind the scenes, like, even if it was just DNA testing hundreds of people and possibly not the most direct way to get there, but, like, it worked, you know, they got there and, yes, like you say, there were some glaring mistakes, which I'm sure, like, you know, they'll regret more than anyone, the people involved in those mm. mistakes. The fact that it delayed yeah. the case by such a long period of time. But actually, like, I do think it's, like, commendable and comforting to know that the police did keep working away until they got answers. I do think it must be awful for the family because actually, like, yes, someone was convicted, but from the sounds of things, like, they didn't really get any answers. Like, they still don't know what happened to their little girl and why and stuff and yeah. I like I wonder I don't know maybe they'd rather not know but I think for me in that situation like I don't know if a conviction would be enough like I'd want that person to like look me in the eyes and yeah I'd want to know the details I think but uh, maybe you wouldn't I'm not sure yeah I definitely get what you're saying I think there is no good ending to this but but I guess just in a way probably just nice for the investigation to be done for them they were kind of do you know what I mean? Like, there's such a horrible thing to go through for four years, not knowing who had done this to your daughter. I guess at least now there is a form of closure. I'm not saying that at all. It would have been good for them or anything like that. But yeah, at least at least for them, it would have just been ended and they could then just start their proper grieving process and they could uh, kind of celebrate Yara's very short life in their own way rather than having to worry about like the media and all the rest of it and all this investigation going on. Yeah, I totally agree. And also, probably for them, like, what would have been really difficult would be knowing that for all that time, who, like, the person who did it was roaming free, like, able to hurt someone else. And hopefully for them, like, yeah. it was some peace of mind knowing that, like, the perpetrator was behind bars and that, like, other children were safe and stuff. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. So Yara Gambaresio is buried between her two grandparents in a cemetery just across the road from the gym that she spent so long training at. Her gravestone is covered in mementos such as gym shoes, dolls and little bracelets left by her friends. Thank you so much everyone for listening to this episode. Thank you Brie again for the suggestion. Sorry it took me so long to get around to researching it but hopefully it was worth it. Thank you so much for all of your support. As always if you want to hear more or support the show you can head over to Patreon um, or if you just want to share your opinions, thoughts or suggestions then let us know on Instagram or Facebook um, what you think. Thanks so much for listening everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.